0: Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance Ben Santinelli, portfolio manager of the Poland Credit Opportunities Fund. Ben, welcome to Forward Guidance. Yeah, Jack, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Pleasure is mine, Ben. So just to set the stage, uh, what you invest in is credit. So uh, as as you know, and many of our audience members today know, when it comes to taking interest rate risk, you know the risk that interest rates go up. Uh, the long, investors in long duration instruments uh, have faced, I would say, close to catastrophic uh, losses. The 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 it, it is quite extreme the losses on, on there uh, that's related to the government debt and, and interest rate risk. Your world, as my understanding is, completely at the very short end of the yield curve, so very little duration of risk. But you're you're really taking that credit risk. So you know the risk isn't that you get paid back, but interest rates are go up, but that. Uh, uh, you don't get paid back. So how would you, um, just tell us a little bit about 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 your fund, um, your background and what you invest in. And then how would you characterize uh, the, let's say the past year for credit, your world? Yeah, sure. So
1: a little bit on background, I've been here for just about uh, a little over 19 years at, at Poland. And uh, again, we've, uh, throughout that entire timeline, we've been a hundred percent focused on the leverage credit markets. So whether it be high deal bonds, levered loans, private credit, um, it, it's where we spend 100 percent of our time. So your your point about interest rates, and I, I think it's pretty important because most fixed income investors, you know, their outcomes are going to be determined by the direction uh, and the severity of movement of interest rates. But I think one of the things that's unique about how we look at credit and through our bottom up um, you know, value-based approaches, we're much more focused on the quality of business and the underlying fundamentals of those businesses than we are about interest rates. And it works well with our strategy because as, you know, when you think about the entire leverage credit universe, most of our portfolios are made up about a third in loans, uh, which have very low effective adjusted duration uh, because obviously they're floating rate. About a third is made up of bonds, and that third uh, tends to be kind of lower tier middle market, so it's relatively shorter uh, um, from a maturity perspective, so the duration there is lower. And and then we have about a third, which are in less liquid situations, and, and those are a mix between bonds and loans. So we tend to have a maturity that's in line with the overall market, but our adjusted effective duration you know, averages between one and two. So it's much more important to us that we get the underlying fundamentals right of the businesses that we're investing in than the overall direction of rates. I would also add to that that most of our portfolios uh, have a pretty significant yield advantage over the index. So our average portfolio has a coupon today of about 10 and a quarter percent. 25 basis point moves uh, in 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 Fed funds uh, don't really have a material impact when you have a 10 and a quarter percent coupon and a 12 percent yield on the portfolio. Yes, it can it can affect the overall market, the refinancing market, things like that. But we've seen over time, the number one driver of performance of our accounts is going to be the underlying credit quality uh, and performance of the businesses, not rates.
0: Thanks. And then how would you summarize the past year for your world? High yield bonds, uh, you know, non-investment grade instruments, private credit, leverage loans.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, as I said before, you know, I've been here for 19 years. And other than maybe the first one or two, we really haven't seen an environment like this where, you know, we're simply being we're, we're simply the beneficiaries of a move in Fed funds that has you know loans that we were buying you know debt securities that we were buying last year to a year and a half ago at 5% today are yielding 10%. Um the underlying fundamentals really have not changed of those businesses so this is a, you know this is an opportunity where debt investors can get equity like returns in fixed income instruments that that's not a you know we've seen yields this high before but it's usually coincided with periods of Economic turmoil or mark massive market dislocations. Today, you know things are okay. They're not great, um, but we're still able to achieve double digit um, double digit returns in fixed income instruments. So, from from that perspective, the market, um, you know, I think it, you know, a lot of people uh, have come over to the fact that you know maybe bonds are back in favor. You can actually get paid for the risk. Uh, that you're taking, and for a lot of people, that you know, 10% bogey is enough for them. So it, it's been a pretty unique environment where asset allocators, investors, um, are now you know rethinking their allocations because they can actually get yield in, in the fixed income markets.
0: And how do you assess value when you look at? The risk of not being paid back, the risk of default, relative to sort of the implied default of the risk premium that you're, you're taking by making that loan. You know, for for example, uh, in 2021, spreads I guess were very very narrow, but uh, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, very 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 few defaults, and I know you know defaults delinquencies have been low, um, but they are rising. So. It just you can speak on the general world uh, uh, of credit and or your specific world. What are you sort of seeing there in terms of the risk of reward, of the risk of default verge? How much you're being paid for that risk? Yeah, so
1: I, I think there are a couple aspects to that. So first, one of the things that I think that we do here at, at Poland that's unique is, you know, we don't rely on the ratings agencies to determine the risk of default for an individual security that we're purchasing. You know, we view everything through the lens of loan to value. How much is the entire enterprise worth? what are we lending against it? And if it's in that kind of 40 to 60% loan to value, those are securities that we want to buy. It doesn't matter to us if it's rated triple C, single B, double B, it's really through the lens of, of loan to value. Our clients have given us the flexibility where we're not beholden to the ratings agencies to determine risk. So that's one factor that I think, you know, just to give you an idea of the lens that we're looking through. Another thing that benefits our strategies is we're very concentrated about, you know, the top 10 names make up about a third of the portfolio. The top 25 names make up about two thirds of the portfolio. So I wouldn't say we're taking broad market risk. What we're really trying to do is take company specific risk. It's a lot easier to predict the earnings of a business for two or three years than it is to predict the direction of interest rates. It's a lot more repeatable, um, I I think, in in our process. So yes, will the market face increasing defaults probably back to historic levels, maybe even a touch higher? I think that's the case. Um, But when you think about the way we view credit and the way we build portfolios, it's really gonna come down to those underlying businesses. I do believe that default rates will increase. You know, we are seeing fundamentals soften across the board. Um, you know, although, you know, people can debate whether there is a maturity wall or how how, you know, I guess how high that wall is in, in 26, 27, 28, um, with, you know, rising interest costs, you know, there there could be some issues around refinancing that I think will will plague the overall market. And that's why we will see defaults increase. But I think it's really important to remember that good businesses don't default. People will put capital into good businesses, and that's why it's our job to, you know, not worry so much about what's the maturity, what's the duration, what's the what's the yield on these securities. But it's really to find good businesses uh, because, again, as I said, good businesses don't default. Good businesses don't go bankrupt, and when you're talking about investing from a fixed income perspective, when you need to be more concerned about how much money you can lose versus how much money you can make, um, you know, we cannot impair capital. And, and really, uh, that means we cannot have bankruptcies. And uh, the best way to avoid bankruptcies is by investing in fundamentally sound businesses that generate free cash.
0: Right. So uh, the, your new fund, it's launched this summer, uh, but in, in your previous experience at, at Poland, what is a level of default that you sort of accept? Like, Oh, if the market's defaulting at two, we want to be defaulting, our your securities default at one. Yeah, And uh, you sort of speak to that. Yeah, sure. So,
1: you know, historically over the 20 years and previously before that, the 26 years that, that we've been around, um, our defaults have been in line with the index. And I think what's Surprising to a lot of people is that yes, our defaults are in line with the index, but we own, according to the ratings agencies, a much lower quality portfolio than the overall makeup of the index. So, just from a pure ratings perspective, we own about fifty percent triple Cs in our portfolio. The index makes up about ten or fifteen percent triple C, but yet. We have a default rate that is in line with the index. So, if our defaults can stay in line with the index, as I said earlier, we create portfolios that usually have between a two and four hundred basis point yield advantage over the index. And the uh, index is a leveraged loan
0: index, something Yeah, like that. it's
1: usually we use the Bank of America or the Bloomberg, um, you know, high yield index. Just mm-hmm. okay. you know, depending on the client, but just the market in general, it, the the index itself is a little bit. Not irrelevant, but
0: um, you can. Yeah, you it, d- it depends. It's hard to define. Yeah.
1: But basically, if we have defaults that are in line with the index and we have a yield advantage of 200 to 400 basis points over the index, we can harvest that yield advantage over the course of a credit cycle in order to generate alpha consistently. And again, that's why it comes down to really making sure that we're investing in the highest quality, best best businesses in you know what people consider you know a leverage credit universe a, a jump credit universe
0: hey everyone we're about to get back in the action but before we do let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at blockworks come march next year in the heart of london we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers i'm talking about the big hitters fund managers allocators payment providers and the major high frequency traders they'll all be converging at digital asset summit london the mother of all digitally-focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of real-world assets. So think stablecoins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there, and so are the Forward Guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Lang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated forward guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode. So gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Earlier, you referenced a uh, loan to value. So that implies that it's a secured uh, fixed income instrument. I, I think so. Uh, what is often the collateral? What is the value that is securitized against? How often are you looking for a, uh, you know, th- that value, that collateral to be commercial real estate, for example?
1: What the security is collateralized against in our eyes is really irrelevant. What we're trying to do is say, how much is this entire business worth? Whether it's based on you know the future cash flows of the business discounted back to some present value, whether it's based on public comps and their trading values or private you know multiple transactions, there's you know uh, there's 50 ways where you can value a business. If we look at all of those and come up with some total enterprise for the business, what would somebody else pay for this business? What would a strategic pay for this business? What would a private equity firm? What would an individual investor? pay for this business? And if we're well in, you know, you think about it like a mortgage on your house. If your house is worth $2 million, um, yes, it's secured by the land and the house, but it's really what would somebody pay for your house? And as debt investors, we're looking at, okay, if the house is worth $2 million, how much money are we going to give this person for a mortgage? It's a very uh, simplistic way of looking at things, but That's effectively what we're doing. And I think that's why it has been so repeatable is that we're not relying on a ratings agency or what is the absolute level? What is the leverage? What is the interest coverage ratio? What is this one data point that's going to determine the risk profile of this investment? The best way to look at what is the risk profile of this entire entity is how much is the whole thing worth and how much are we lending against it? And if we're only lending 40 to 50% against the total enterprise value of an asset, there will be people, um, you know, beneath us, there is a large equity cushion beneath us. And there are people who want those assets. You know, a lot of times in fixed income, people will see, um, you know, a security that is seven times levered and they'll say, geez, that's a lot of leverage that has to be incredibly risky. Well, if the business is only worth eight times, then yes, you're 90% loan to value. That's a very risky investment. But if the business is worth 20 times and it's generating cash, it has you know sustainable margin profile, real true competitive advantages, you're seven times on 20, you're some 50% loan to value. That doesn't look that risky to me, even though to most people, they see seven times and they say, hey, we can't invest in that. And, you know, that is one of the, I I think when you, when you think about risk and you think about how we differentiate ourselves from most fixed income investors, that's probably the largest determinant, Um, the, the largest factor in how our portfolios are different than the rest of the marketplace is that it's truly based on loan to value and really nothing else.
0: Loan to value, nothing else. I, I understand that you can that value is a commodity. Oh, we're lending to one type of business. We're lending against, you know, accounts receivable. The other type, where we're lending against some other form of collateral. I, I, I get that. But what about, you know, if and I'm not. I don't know. Tell me if they are. But you know, if if someone was lending against a uh, office building in San Francisco, which you know in 2021 was valued at a billion dollars with a loan to value of 40. percent and then the bill uh, you know similar building was instead of a billion dollars was now sold in 2023 for 200 million now your loan to value instead of 40% it's it's 200%. so do you do any commercial real estate there and and if if not or whether or not can you can you comment on that
1: yeah so we we don't do commercial real estate um you know it's really you know there are specialized lenders who focus on that marketplace it's really not a um a liquid marketplace, the, the liquid marketplace that we're transacting in on a daily basis. You know, we can trade our portfolio uh, every day. It's broker quoted. Uh, there's an active market for it. They're bid and asks every day. So, you know, we try to, you know, 80% or so of our, mar- uh, of our portfolios are daily priced and, and traded. So we're looking at more of the liquid uh, portion of, of the market. And again, to your point exactly, loan to value is more art than science. There's, you know, the the, the value of something is in the eye of the beholder. And it's really what is incumbent upon our analyst team and the research process that we follow to look at, okay, what is a normalized level of earnings for this business? Are they over earning? Are they under earning? What are the dynamics in this particular sector that is going to change their forecasts in one, two, three years? Do they have true competitive advantages that are sustainable? You know, are there technological threats? Is there obsolescence threats? Those are that's all part of the bottom up diligence that's incumbent upon us to do um, as analysts in, in order to build out a portfolio where we're very comfortable with the
0: risks that we're taking. And so when you buy term loans or bank loans, leverage loans, who do you typically buy those from? Yeah,
1: sure. So most of the, the loans that we're buying are broadly syndicated loans. Um, you know, today there's a loan in the marketplace for Raising Cane's. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, it's a chick, fast food chicken restaurant in the mm-hmm. South. They're looking to expand into the Northeast. This is a deal that JP Morgan I, is launching. And they're going out to the marketplace to raise $500 million uh, of capital in the form of a, this is actually a form of a note today. It's not a loan, but same point stands. And um, so there are businesses that a lot of people have heard of. A lot of people know them. And it's just, um, you know, a broadly syndicated deal that, you know, Raising Cane's hired JP Morgan to raise $500 million. JP Morgan goes out and goes to institutional investors and sells the debt. It's a it's a very liquid marketplace. I mean the the loan mar- the loan market today I think on the broadly syndicated side is close to a trillion and a half dollars. The high yield bond market uh, in North America is close to a trillion and a half dollars. So it's a large asset class, and um, you know there are a lot of companies: Ford, you know, uh, Netflix, Uber um Revlon you know brand names that people have heard both good and bad Revlon uh, yeah yeah <laughs> uh, more on the bad than the good but mm-hmm. uh you know there there are a lot of household names that people just don't realize they use the the leverage credit markets in order to provide the business with whether it be growth capital M&A uh share buyback capital you know whatever you know general corporate purposes that they need it for
0: Got it. And, and what have you seen in terms of the activity of origination of, of syndication of loans? Just looking at I think all sorts of types of loans. Total bird's eye view. I think there's a ton of lending last year, and it's somewhat slowed down. Is that fair to say of, of, for your neck of the woods as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with
1: where rates are, people are not opportunistically refinancing unless they have a maturity. You know, I I would equate it to. If you had a 3% 30-year mortgage on your house, you're not going to go to the bank today and say, you know what, I think I want to refinance at 8%. Um, you're going to hold that for as long as you can. It's an asset. Um, so we're not seeing a ton of opportunistic refinancing for sure. And the other part is that um, the on the, on the true origination side, no, there's been a there's been a, a lack of activity on the private equity front, which has historically been one of the largest um, users of the leveraged loan market to help finance their um, their acquisitions. And you know the model becomes more different, more difficult as a private equity firm when you're paying when your cost of capital on the debt stack is ten or eleven percent versus you know the last fifteen years it's been at three or four percent. So, um, you know, there has not been a ton of private equity activity. There has not been a ton of, as I said earlier, opportunistic refinancing. One of the things that that has created is there's a pretty strong technical from a supply demand perspective in the marketplace that is helping uh, this asset class to have a pretty strong year. You know, there are more buyers than there are sellers, and there hasn't been a ton of new um securities to invest in. So these these portfolios are generating income on a monthly, quarterly basis that needs to be reinvested back in that marketplace. And um, you know, especially as rates were going up, people were people were putting money into flows into the levered loan space uh, was pretty dramatic because people wanted to take advantage of those higher yields. So a lot of money flowing in, a lot of demand for the asset class, not a lot of supply, um, and that's why you've seen or one of the reasons why you've seen some some really
0: strong numbers out of the out of the levered loan um, asset class. And then, so roughly, according to your perspective, sixteen percent of your fund is in private credit. How do you divide what's what's a private credit and what is just your other opportunistic type of credit? Yeah, so sure. So,
1: you know, I think it's important because private equity. Uh, so first, basically, uh, we, we determine whether it's private credit versus public credit based on the liquidity profile. Uh, was it broadly syndicated, you know, through a large uh, brokerage house like a JP Morgan? Or was it uniquely originated or sourced by somebody at Poland or, you know, one of our partners? Um, so it really has to do with the liquidity profile of the of the debt instrument whether we classify it as public or private credit. That being said, the definition of what private credit is has really changed over the last 15 or so years. We've been doing private credit at Poland since I got here and before. So it's not a new asset class to us, although it has gained in popularity over the last few years dramatically. Um, you know We've always taken the approach that In some markets, you are getting paid the liquidity premium to be in private credit. In other markets, you are not. If we can have the flexibility to toggle between both markets, that should give our investors the best possible return. So we've never had a dedicated fund directly towards all public or directly towards all private. It's that flexibility to find the best relative value at any given moment that really has helped us generate alpha over a long period of time. Today, there's been a massive amount of dollars raised in the private credit space. There's still a massive amount of dry powder that needs to be put to work, and you're seeing the definition of private credit kind of morph. You know, 10 years ago it was direct originated loans, you know, me to you and there was nobody else involved. Today, there can be 15 people in, in a in a deal. Again, not it's not broad, broadly syndicated, but 15 is, is not insignificant, and that can count as private credit. Um, you could buy an on the run high yield bond that's been hung on a bank balance sheet, and you buy it at a discount, uh, 15 20 point discount off the off the bank. That is now considered private credit. So there are, there are a lot of definitions I think that people have of private credit um, and, and it, it, it is a, a real asset class, there's no doubt about it, it is here to stay. I think though from our perspective right now, given the underlying rates that you can get paid in the public markets, we're not seeing the liquidity premium that would drive us to want to allocate more into private credit today. You know that can definitely change but you know historically we've targeted you know around a four to five hundred basis point premium for uh you know illiquidity to go into a private transaction to sacrifice that liquidity and, and today um you know it's it's probably closer to 50 to 150 basis points so for us uh that's you know not not reaching our our kind of threshold but um It it has definitely been a major player in our markets in taking share from the banks. And, um, you know, a lot of people like the fact that it appears on the outside to be relatively stable asset class.
0: And tell us about how it it appears to be. I think, you know, with a normal loan or a bond, there's a rating agency, it pays Quarterly, semi-annually. If it doesn't pay, you pay. There's a there's a default. Is there an issue with private credit where, you know, maybe it's it's a little bit less opaque. It's hard to tell. You know, and there there could be loans that are marked at hundred dollars that uh you know are, are not worth that and could have severe credit issues.
1: I that absolutely could be the. I mean, uh, private lending in general. You do not need to mark to market. These are not daily priced uh, loans. So. Whereas in the vast majority of our portfolio, which is daily price and mark to market, we see the daily gyrations of the market resulted in the portfolio, and and people see that in private credit, much like a private equity firm, you don't need to mark your portfolio every day based on you know whether the Dow was up or whether Treasuries were up uh, or down on, on a daily basis. So um, yes, you can. That doesn't mean the businesses are are necessarily stable it just means you're not marking them on a daily basis so can you have situations where companies are performing incredibly well or you know very poorly and you know there's a lag in, in the pricing of those securities for sure um, you know I think from our perspective um, because we are involved in this market the the thing that would concern me more than the mark to market, would just be the, the basic underwriting standards. And I, and I think when you, when you look at the market as a whole and you think about how much money has been raised in the marketplace in such a short period of time, mostly in the form of dedicated funds that need to put money to work, um, you know, I, I do think that there has been a deterioration in underwriting standards. And that will play itself out when we do have a default cycle, and that I I do think that recovery rates will be lower. Um, I don't think that's a unique opinion by any stretch. I think that that's been pretty widely speculated, but it, it seems to make sense when when a lot of money goes into any particular asset class, um, you know the 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 something has to give, and I think what we'll see give here is the fact that recovery rates on Loans uh, will be lower in the next default cycle than they had been in previous default cycles.
0: Interesting. And, w- and when you say that underwriting standards may not be as rigorous as they they were in the past, because so much money has flooded into into the space, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. What might? What are the new? Uh, where can you see that that lack of stringency? Is it uh, the, the loan to values are uh, a higher loan to values, uh, higher you know, interest ratio cover uh, coverage? just not looking at the fundamentals of the business, all, all of the above.
1: Yeah, it's really all of the above. Um, you know, people will lend higher on a loan to value perspective. The quality of the underlying cash flows might be weaker. Um, you know, there, there could be um, you know, more loopholes, so to speak, in, the, in the, the credit documents themselves that are more borrower friendly. Um, you know, it it's really uh it's really an all of the above situation. Wherever somebody gives, somebody else is gonna take. So it, it's just more of a generic, you know, uh a generic take in that when you see that amount of capital flowing into a relatively niche kind of asset class, um, you know, and you want to put that money to work, you need to compete. There are a lot of people who have raised funds and they want deals. And when you have more people looking at fewer deals, uh, they're going to be more competitive. And the person who wins the deal, generically speaking, provided the lowest rate to the company. So uh, you won and now you have the loan, but you also were willing to do it at a lower cost of capital or a looser document or, um, you know, whatever it may be than, than than your competitors. So it's just uh, it's a fact of life in all asset classes I don't think it's unique to private credit but it's just something that we've seen over the last few years as you've seen the explosion in capital uh, raised in, in that space
0: hmm. and, and how would you assess your outlook just on the uh, bank loan leverage loan for for publicly traded not the private credit credit space I suppose there's there's times where you know the Things are it's there's blood on the streets and the, the uh you know yields are very high and you're much more sanguine about the future than most people in the market. That's obviously a time where you want to be buying a hand over fist, you know, if, if you have the cash. Are you in, in that stage? Are you on the other side of the spectrum where you think, you know, it's, it's time to be fearful because everyone else, uh everyone else is greedy? Um, because it is, you know, you say these yields are so high, but is it accurate to say that? A lot of that is just interest rates going up. So, the the re- resetting of, of rates of SOFR, what it's tied to, not the spread widening.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, spreads by historical standards are still relatively tight. I, I remind people here all the time, though, that we call it high yield. We don't call it high spread. So, you know, it, it, it's really, you can choose your poison. You You can say for five years, oh, well, we weren't getting enough yield, but spreads were okay. Well, today we're getting a lot of yield, but Spreads are still relatively tight. You know, you can come up with a reason why not to invest, and you know, I think look, a lot of people do, and they have very, you know, good reasons for it. But from our perspective, um, like I said earlier, yes, we've been the beneficiary for the last year and a half of a higher rate environment, and. There aren't that many opportunities that I can think of where you have a economic picture that yes, it might be muddled, but it's by no means a sky is falling type scenario where you can earn equity like returns in fixed income investments. It's just a a pretty unique situation. Now, to your point earlier about oh well, you know, what is our outlook? I I, I, do, I do think we. We do believe, as I said earlier, I, we do believe that defaults will increase. Fundamentals are weakening, um, but I, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot here is the, you know, how how wage inflation and how goods inflation is impacting a lot of the businesses that we're investing in, and you know, I think everybody can see for the most part that goods are coming down. Um, you know, whether it be supply chain, whether it be certain monetary policies, inflation on the good side is is getting a little bit easier. The wage picture um, is is still pretty tough. Uh, You know, you can see it in the, the recent UAW strike. I mean, labor doesn't strike when they're at a position of weakness. And when you think about how strong the employment environment is today, Um, it's wage inflation coming down is very difficult to manage in an orderly fashion. So one of the things that we've been very cognizant of in looking at businesses that we're putting in the portfolios is how much is, what percentage of their costs are, you know, fixed and variable when it comes to labor. If we see a business and there's been some on the healthcare side, on the staffing side, where they have a huge component of their business is variable labor costs, or even fixed labor costs for that matter. Those companies will struggle because wage inflation is not coming down. The employment numbers are still incredibly strong and that, so that is, you know, that is specific to businesses that have that type of cost structure. But I think it leads back to our overall outlook and that it's really hard to go into a recession when you have, when people have jobs and Americans love to spend money. If people have jobs, they will spend money. And yes, will things slow? Could we have a mild recession? Could Could the Fed force us into a recession? Sure. But a recession doesn't equate to the great financial crisis of 2008. It just means it's a normal cyclical slowdown of, of the economy. And you know, I think that's probably our in-house view is that Things are weakening. Yes, it might slow down. We may go into a recession or we might not. But the we we don't think the severity of that or the duration of that will be particularly painful as long as those employment numbers uh, remain as strong as they do.
0: A really interesting point about labor. I want to put a pin in that, but just to ask about the potential of a a uh, mild recession a short recession a, a vanilla recession as opposed to very idiosyncratic recessions march 2020 um, 2008 2009 what wh- if during a vanilla recession what typically happens to defaults i presume they go up but in your neck of the words how much uh, um, do they they go up and uh yeah what do you th- sort of forecast the investment uh leverage loan market high yield market would would perform like in a mild recession
1: again I think it's going to come down to the individual businesses um, in in that space there's always some sectors that are doing well some sectors that are doing poorly so it's going to matter. it 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 will be you know what is causing is it a consumer-led um you know recession is it is it a manufacturing recession what is driving the underlying weakness I I think we'll go into that but You know, the the thing about fixed income that is great is, you know, when you when you buy a stock or you buy an, an equity security, you can say, oh, I think there's a catalyst out there in the future. Maybe it's earnings. Maybe it's this where we think once that happens, the stock will go up or down. We have the greatest catalyst known to mankind, and that's a maturity. The company either needs to pay you back on that date or. Hopefully, you will own the business uh, if you've done your underwriting correctly.
0: What you say? Hopefully, you mean that's actually an optimal outcome. Well, or you anything? hope
1: that you haven't you haven't lost so much value that there's no recovery for the debt holders and mm-hmm. there's nothing left. That would be a Chapter Seven. Uh, that's not great. Chapter Eleven can be totally fine for a business if it's just reorganization. It's reorganizing with a different balance sheet. If if there's been so much deterioration in the business that it's going to liquidate, uh, that's not a good outcome for anybody. So, again, that's why it goes down to making sure you're picking good businesses, um, you know, to invest in. But we have a maturity and, you know, on that maturity date, the company either needs to pay you back or they're going to file for bankruptcy. Will those those rates tick higher because of the recession that maybe happens? Yes. Will it tick higher because their interest costs are materially higher than they were five years ago and they don't generate uh, enough cash in order to support the debt load that they have? For sure. You know, where that goes, we've generally taken the view that it will probably revert back to that three to four percent historic average. We've been well under that for a number of years, you know, the last 15 years debt has been incredibly cheap and and money has uh, been readily available to even some of the lowest quality of issuers, Um, you know, in in an environment where, you know, we have interest, you know, base rates at 5% and, you know, companies that are struggling can't raise capital unless it's in the 12, 13, 14% range. Well, a lot of those businesses don't generate the type of cash in order to support paying interest costs at 13%, 14%. Those are the businesses that will struggle and will default at a higher rate. Again, it's incumbent upon us as analysts um, to analyze these businesses and understand how much disposable cash they have, what type of interest cost increase could this business take and still generate cash.
0: Hmm. Earlier, you referenced... Um... I things are weakening. Were you, were you referencing macroeconomic data that, you know, people who are you know, follow following the markets may, may track, or are you following specific things in the credit markets that it, it's likely, you know, none, none of us have, have heard about? I,
1: I was referencing rather the fact that we own about 80 businesses uh, in our portfolios. If I had a, generically speaking, I'd say two-thirds of them have revenues down mid-single digits there's their costs are up, you know, low to mid single digits. So you're seeing some margin compression. Um, again, these are off pretty strong numbers in 21 and 22. Um, so things are slowing down for those businesses, but it is not at a level where we're saying, wow, these guys really need to start cutting costs and battening down the hatches because we're, you know, the the sky's about to fall in. It's just softer. And, and I know that that doesn't, raise, you know, the the fear monitor in a lot of people because it's just kind of a plain vanilla message that things aren't that bad. Things aren't that good either. It's just kind of okay. And again, for us, where we have such a huge yield advantage over the index, okay is fine. We have the, you know, we have the, we have the coupon that allows us to be patient. And, you know, that's a very, um, You know, it's a very powerful tool uh, when you're trying to manage a portfolio. We don't do a lot of trading in our portfolios. You know, we are, you know, longer term buy and hold investors. And when you have a 10, 10 and a half percent coupon, that provides you a lot of patience to be selective and being selective in an environment like this, um, you know, is really what's going to differentiate managers that outperform or, or underperform.
0: So, so I'm looking at the top 10 issuers uh, in in your new fund. And it appears to me that uh, most of them uh, are not publicly traded. If you feel comfortable, could you talk about maybe one or two of them and, and why you think it's sort of why the market uh, uh, misvalued it and uh, the spread was too high relative to the risk? Like why, why these companies?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I think one thing that's important when you think about um, the names that we're investing in. when you think about, call it the 80 names in our portfolio, I would say that about 80% of those names are private equity owned businesses. So they're not publicly traded businesses. Um, what is private equity looking for? They're looking for high quality businesses that are growing, uh, that generate cash and that are valuable enterprises. So, because they are valuable enterprises that generate cash, what can they do? They can add the L in the LBO. They can put leverage on it. So they they lever those businesses six or seven times out of the gates. When you leverage something six or seven times, you are automatically going to get a triple C rating, regardless of the quality of the business. Most fixed income investors are, you know, I don't. I won't call them benchmark huggers, but they are very aware of the benchmark. They have a lot of restrictions on what they can own. They can't be. You know, they have to stay within certain bandwidths. Um, and one of those relates to lower tier, triple C and single B rated securities. They're, the large institutional buyers are not buying those deals in mass. So what does that do? It creates an inefficiency where people who are willing to take the time to understand that entire business and why it can be leveraged six times and why it can be successful. And it's really 50, 60% loan to value, which is an incredibly attractive security, why they can buy that even though it's rated triple C. We don't have any of those restrictions placed on us from our clients. So You know, we are, like I said earlier, we're ratings agnostic. It really has no impact on what we're buying. So therein lies the opportunity. Most people won't look at it, won't buy it, or they just automatically deem it too risky because the ratings agencies said it's a triple C security. We take a different view of that. We say, look, yes, it's levered, but this is a really high quality business. It's generating a lot of cash and, um, Yes, it might be six times levered, but it's uh, you know fifteen times business, and you're sub fifty percent loan to value. That's a great security to
0: own. And how are your companies, which you know are often quite levered? How do you think of them managing that interest rate expense? Where you know if if Amazon borrows forty year fixed rate, it's it's the bondholders who have a problem, not not Amazon. But in in your your world, very short duration uh, at floating rate instruments your you know uh uh holders of of those loans are getting paid more as the fed reserve federal reserve raised over 500 basis points but interest expense is going can going up uh 100%. uh how often you know do do your companies or companies in that universe think about hmm maybe i'm going to term out that debt maybe i'm going to put on a little bit of a hedge.
1: Yeah, i mean look if they did hedge which many of them have they're they're reaping the benefits of that today. Uh but it, you know that's a constant that's a constant argument or Debate internally that those businesses are having: Should we turn this out in the high yield bond market? Um, should we go into the leveraged loan market? Where can we get the best matrix of, you know, covenants versus rate versus execution? You know, from our perspective, we're relatively agnostic to whether we buy a bond or a loan. Um, again, where it moves in the interim, what the mark to markets are, are are not you know, what's driving our underlying investment thesis. It's what is the yield on the security and what is the loan to value? And what we're trying to do is find the highest yield with the lowest loan to value and where those cross, those are the names that we want to have conviction in and buy. Um, But company, you know, sure, uh, there is no doubt that increased interest costs on a large portion of the floating rate market will really hurt cash flows of businesses, um, you know that, that have issued term loans, um, you know, rate, rate as you said, rates have gone up 100. That That is why it's incredibly important to buy businesses that generate sustainable free cash flow because they can withstand the interest rate shock to their balance sheet, to their income statement. Um, you know, businesses that were not generating a lot of cash before, are not going to be generating cash today. And those are the businesses that will struggle and you know have difficulty refinancing uh, if they have near-term
0: maturities. And are you seeing that already in the general market? We
1: have not seen it really flow through yet. I mean, rates ha- have been up. Uh, it's really only been a little bit over a year. I think that if we stay in this higher for a longer period that a lot of people have anticipated, um, we will start to see the impact of that. The the other issue that you're running into why we haven't seen it is most businesses coming out of COVID were in pretty good. You know, Once they got out of COVID, there was a pretty good economic rebound. Rates were still incredibly low. A lot of people took advantage to push out their maturities in that time frame. So there haven't been a ton of near-term maturities that companies have had to deal with. Companies default for two reasons. One, they have a maturity, and two, they run out of cash. Not a lot of them run out of cash. It does happen, but it's usually because they have debt that's come due. We really haven't hit that next maturity wall, and we really won't until really 2016, excuse me, 26, 27, 27. So I think you will start to see that tick up uh, as, we, as we move into next year, but uh, we really haven't seen any sort of dramatic tick up in default activity in the marketplace so far, but I think we and most other participants expect uh, that we will start to see that accelerate as we move in later into 2024.
0: Got it, and that is because the overall market, which you know has some concerns, you, you just referenced, has a maturity wall that's out much later. Your portfolio uh, is much shorter duration, but you know, needless to say, you're you're quite confident on the credit. So you said you don't do a lot of trading in and out of stuff. But what about because it has such a short duration, uh, the loans get get you know paid off? What's what's sort of your your game plan? There, Are you just going to keep on investing in. Uh, this asset class? Or, you know, are you going to have some discretion of b- sort of bobbing and weaving?
1: Yeah, so sure. So I, one of the things that's important is we do have a very low duration, but we have a maturity that's in line So our, with the overall index. So yes, oh, okay. the duration is 1.3, but that's because a lot of it's floating rate um, on our portfolio. So we have a maturity that's in line. But no, we I, to your point, what do we plan to do? I mean, obviously, we want to what we're trying to do every day is find the best relative value that is available um, and, and invest in that whether that be in loans bonds private credit public credit it's really irrelevant to us and hopefully the situation that will arise is the businesses that we've invested in because they generate sustainable durable free cash flow will be able to access the markets um, in an orderly fashion Yes, they will pay more in interest costs, so their cash flow will go down. But because they are high-quality businesses that people believe will be worth more in the future than they are today, and that they're generating sustainable cash, they will be able to refinance that debt in in, in normal course. Um, you know, we don't try to make any sort of top-down macro predictions as a firm. You know, one, we we actually actively avoid making those type of uh, calls. So again, we have a very high confidence level in the cash flows of these businesses for the next two, three, four years. What happens in the outside world? Um, you know it will have an impact, but it, it will have a muted impact on our portfolio uh, versus the idiosyncratic risks that each of these individual businesses uh,
0: have. Thanks, man. Final question for you is about that labor question and wages rising. You said it's a, a serious threat, one of the most serious threats uh, um, to the companies in in your market. Uh, tell us more about that, and specifically, uh, again on the macro front, just looking at this, you know, Federal Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker. Uh, wage growth peaked at roughly six point seven percent and is now at five point two percent, so it it has gone down. Um, But are you more concerned about it than uh, a year year ago when that data peaked, because the cash flows are not growing by by as much? Tell us about, just tell us more about that view.
1: From a larger perspective, in 21 and 22, most companies could pass inflation costs on to the consumer. People were able to take price, companies were able to raise price in order to keep up with inflation. As we've seen inflation start to tick down, it's mostly been on the good side of things. The employment side, the wage, not only the wage numbers, but the employment numbers continue to be very strong. People don't actively take pay cuts. And if you have an employment an employment environment where it's difficult to hire skilled employees, um, you know, you have uh, unemployment levels that you know, two or 3%, um, you know, that is an environment that favors, favors labor. Um, and and as I said, you can see it, uh, in the most, in in the UAW, uh, labor action. I mean, they got most of what they asked for. People don't go on strike when they're at a, when they're at a, at a disadvantage, they go on strike when they have, when the, when the, when the deck is in their favor. And, And I think they realize that. And, You know, I think that that could be said for a lot, uh, you know, not just the, you know, the auto workers, but uh, across the board, Um, you know, it's very difficult to hire people in businesses right now. I think whether, you know, you talk to the businesses that we own or universally, uh, just in general, it's one of the, the top concerns of every management team that we speak to is getting people in the right positions and getting qualified people in those positions. If, if those numbers don't come down, it's very difficult for inflation to come down on just uh, from an overall perspective. Inflation, you have goods and you have services. If only the, if only the goods side is coming down and the, inflation, the, the services side is staying high, it's really hard for the Fed to get back to a two, two and a half percent level of inflation if one of the um, ballasts of that is is very sticky. So it, it's been a concern for us in an environment now where companies really can't pass on price increases today. Um, you know, they are going to see further margin compression and further margin compression, you know, will result in lower earnings, which will, you know, result in security prices going down. So... I think that that's a concern for some businesses that we've seen. And we, again, as I said, we've seen it play out in uh, specifically in businesses that have a high portion of their cost structure in labor, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, goods or equipment or whatever, whatever might be. Um, so it's, it's something that we've seen. It's something that we're continuing to, to monitor and, um, you know, we'll see where it goes. Again, it, it we don't know, we don't try to make predictions on these things, mm-hmm. but we, we try to at least be cognizant of what's going on from a macro perspective. And that's definitely something that's been top
0: of mind. We'll leave it there, Ben. Thanks so much for coming yeah. on and sharing your insights. And thanks everyone for watching.
1: Jack, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro, or heard as a podcast on Apple podcast and Spotify episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple podcast. If you feel so inclined.